AfterBuzz TV's Chief Operating Officer, Phil Svitek, comes a weekly digital series that shares his insights, concepts, and findings from years of learning and mentorship. Welcome to Phil Svitek Podcast. Welcome, welcome. I have a special episode just for you. Today's episode is an interview with Elaine Pofeld, who is the author of The Million Dollar One Person Business, a random house book looking at how everyday Americans are breaking $1 million in revenue in businesses with no employees besides the owner. She is a former senior editor at Fortune Small Business Magazine and has written about entrepreneurship for publications such as Crane's New York Business, Money, Inc., CNBC, and many others. Elaine currently contributes to Forbes. She's also a co-founder of 200kfreelancer.com, a community for indie professionals looking to build a thriving business. I first heard of Elaine's book through Tim Ferriss, who I've often cited on the show. He did a podcast about million-dollar one-person businesses, citing the examples from Elaine's book, and therefore I was very interested. I read her book very quickly and found it quite insightful. I'm excited for you to listen to my interview with her because it's inspiring to know that as an individual, you can earn a very good income on your own terms. Especially for people with creative ambitions, her principles can really help. She is very generous with her answers, so I encourage you to take notes. Now, without further ado, here's my interview with Elaine Pofeld. Welcome, Eileen, to the show. Thank you so much, Phil. It's great to be here. Now, um, you know, I, I kind of introduced it in my introduction of you, what the million dollar one person business is, but from your own words, how, how do you describe that to people who, who, who this may be a new concept to them? The way I describe million dollar one person businesses is those that have gotten to 1 million in revenue with no employees. So they may have one person running them. It may be two partners, maybe a husband and wife team or two friends, or it could be several partners. I use the U.S. Census Bureau's definition of the non-employer business, meaning they have no payroll employees. They may have contractors, though. I see. Okay. Well, um, you know, one of the things that you and I were speaking about before we went on air is sort of... um, artists getting into the space and and starting their own businesses. And that that was going to be my question. Um, Based off the people you write about, um, can artists be successful entrepreneurs and still pursue their art and have this sort of business? Oh, they, they absolutely can, Phil. It's really been exciting. Social media has made that much more possible. It, it used to be that most artists had to go through the traditional gatekeepers of galleries and that whole world. And some people really didn't have access. But what's happened, thanks to social media, pay, um, sites like Facebook and Instagram, artists who have something to offer can put it out there for the world to see and create their own markets. I discovered one artist who has been doing incredibly well, Iris Scott. She's in her early 30s. She's a critically acclaimed fine arts painter. She does a um, finger painting technique that's very interesting. And what she did was she started selling her paintings on Gallery. That's U-G-A-L-L-E-R-Y, a site where fine arts painters can, can sell their work. And built up a following there. Um, She did use galleries as well, but she started selling her own paintings on Facebook. And the conventional wisdom she had learned in art school was you have to price your work very high because otherwise people will devalue it. Well, she didn't agree with that. And she started out selling her paintings for $50 
on Facebook. And when they started selling out, she would raise her prices. And long story short, she now has some paintings that sell for $45,000. They're murals, and she has not had to compromise her art. She's doing the same type of art she did before, just a little bit larger scale now, mm-hmm. murals. Um but she's a good example of someone who was very creative in how she marketed her work. She has a very uh, active following on social media. So um, she really connects with her followers. And she actually asks them for advice sometimes about colors and things like that and feels like it's very much a two-way conversation. So it is definitely possible. I only regret that I discovered her after I wrote the book. So she is not in the book, but I did write about her for Forbes. And I do plan on writing about her more because she's got a really interesting business model where she's been able to stay true to her vision as an artist. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you you brought up an interesting point about it being a two-way street. With technology, do you see that as an added tool for a lot of entrepreneurs? the ability to connect with their audience and get feedback more immediately rather than trying something out, putting into the market, seeing it fail and it being like a six month to a year process. Whereas now it's more instantaneous. It's it's definitely speedier. And for people who are willing to listen, um, it can be a very efficient way to build your business and your reputation. I mean, she, she feels like, She's not an artist speaking to people from on high. She really wants to hear what they think of her work and is open to constructive feedback. And I think that's a very different attitude than artists have been encouraged to have. Mm-hmm. You know, we sort of think of the artist often their Garrett, right, or, or the writer or whatever creative person it is, taking feedback from no one, just sticking with their vision. But maybe there's a different way to look at it. That's how, I mean, she, she's a very successful artist and she does look at it differently. And I thought that was just so refreshing to see to the, you know, the ability to put one's ego aside and say, you know what, maybe this lay person who likes my art has something valuable to say. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I want to ask you, it gets brought up on Shark Tank a lot, um, is this notion of hobby versus an actual business. And from your perspective, what do you think the difference is if someone who has an idea wants to bring it to market and, you know, is it, how do they determine, is this just a hobby of mine or am I really pursuing this for the right reason? I don't think people really know when they start out with something where it's going to take them. That's the exciting part of being a creative person and being an entrepreneur, right? You, you create something put it out there in the world. And then the world has some say as to whether it's a hobby or a business, you know, as do you in terms of how much time and effort you put into it. A lot of the people in the book started out running the business on the side and it was kind of a passion. And then they found there was demand for their passion and they started turning it into more and more of a business. And when they finally had enough income to replace a job, that was when they went full time. So it's not something you can entirely control. And in a way that's freeing because you can just try something, see if it works. And if it doesn't work, but you like doing it, then leave it as a hobby. But maybe if it's making money and people want more of it, then you decide to step on the gas a little bit. Absolutely. Um, That's a good way to look at it. In, In a lot of the interviews that I've seen you conduct, you cite that um, funding tends to be a big obstacle or at least a question that entrepreneurs ask you about um, how they should get funding. Do you think now with the technology of crowdfunding and even sites like Patreon, 
Do you think that's helped entrepreneurs? And, and if so, how do they best utilize resources like that? Crowdfunding is hugely helpful for entrepreneurs who have a good following on social networks because when you do a crowdfunding campaign you have to send it out to people so if you have nobody to send it out to it will be hard to raise money that way but if you've been slowly building up a following it doesn't have to be huge of people that like your ideas it can work very well i just wrote a book uh, i'm sorry an article about steven sudell for forbes he's a physical therapist who played football when he was younger and he hurt his neck recently, not not severely, but enough where he wanted some relief. And he created a prototype for a product called the neck hammock. Mm. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's like a little hammock for your neck and it attaches to a doorknob and you put your head in it. It's kind of like a traction device. Mm -hmm. He raised money. He raised about 900,000 on Kickstarter and then he brought the total to 1.7 million by going on to Indiegogo and was able to then have the money to manufacture the product. And since he introduced it last year, he has brought in $3 million from it on top of the money from the crowdfunding sites. And he's still running his physical therapy business 32 hours a week. He loves running it. He's actually, um, this weekend, he's going to be on a panel discussion I'm doing at the Chicago Inventors Organization Annual Conference. And I'm so excited to hear more about his story. But that's an example of someone who was not, I mean, he had a physical therapy practice. So in that way, he definitely was a business person, but more of a healer. You know, he wasn't necessarily motivated by making money primarily, although that was a byproduct of having a successful physical therapy practice. And he wound up seeing a need for an invention and crowdfunding helped him to get to where he wanted to go. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And in the book, you cite the reason why these million dollar businesses, um, specifically one person businesses are able to take off is because of uh, things like automation and, and being able to sort of offload a lot of, um, I don't say the mundane tasks, but, but perhaps the, the tasks that, the entrepreneur himself or herself is not fully versed in. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you is that in essence means you got to prioritize what you are good at. And how would you say someone should determine their priority priorities if they are a one person business and which tasks to offload to somebody else? There are some tasks that only you can do, right? If you're an artist, only you can make the paintings right? You're a musician, only you can make your music. Same, you know, with a writer. So those are things you cannot offload. Where I would start is with the things you really hate. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you an example. In my business, I hate bookkeeping. I really just hate it. And I would put it off. And then when I finally got around to it, it was this huge task. So finally, I thought, why am I doing this? This is crazy. it's, It's something that someone else can do really well it's not that expensive to hire a bookkeeper so i i hired a contractor to do it and she does a wonderful job she loves bookkeeping she gives me great business advice and it's such a relief so i think if there's something you're just not doing because you hate it you're putting it off you're falling behind on it that's where you start you have to also look at your cash flow because maybe the first year of your business you can't offload anything you have to at least 
do things in a rudimentary way, just, you know, as you're generating sales, because you can't hire contractors and then not pay them. Mm-hmm. But as you grow the business, you might say, okay, this is year two. I have enough money to reinvest in the business a little bit beyond paying myself. So where where am I going to deploy that money so I can free myself up to work on the higher level tasks that grow the business, like meeting new clients or marketing or coming up with new products and services that you can sell? Those are those are things that really require your A game. So you, you need to make time for them. Um, and then what you do is after you've offloaded one, then you think about, okay, what's number two as I have the cash flow to support it? What else could I have somebody else do for me? So maybe instead of going on a website to get your legal documents, you go to a lawyer and make sure it's done really well, you know, beyond what, what you might get in a, um, a, a boilerplate legal document. There, there might be different things for different businesses, but you do it one by one. And then all of a sudden you'll have it set up very nicely where things are really humming. And then you can reassess again. Maybe now you're ready to bring on someone like a junior employee at some point. I'm not against hiring employees, by the way. <laughs> I just think people do it pre mm-hmm. to support it. And then that can really drain the life out of the business. Got it. You know, in, in thinking kind of about your answer and some some of these offloading of tasks, I imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there's a fine line between offloading some of these tasks um, and still sort of understanding at least how it's supposed to ver- work versus, okay, I, I completely hate this. I don't – like in, in, in let's say in your case, I don't like bookkeeping. I don't want to deal with it and then just saying this person is in charge of it and I never have to look at it. it is there that fine line and, and what is it? So that way, in essence – it's just all of a sudden you're not getting screwed over because your bookkeeper um, is doing something, you know, behind your back or, or just even if they're doing their job right, your money's going out faster than it's coming in and you're just not aware. Is that um, – and, and I guess the question would be then, you know, how do you, how do you become knowledgeable to understand these various roles and how to piece them together even if you're not an expert in that particular um, – thing that that the expert is obviously an expert in running the business will teach you because for instance i'm i'm a writer right the first thing i did when i was starting my business was i went out and networked with people i knew who might need a freelance writer maybe we had coffee together and i said oh by the way i went freelance i started a business then you get your work right so you go do the work then all of a sudden you're saying, oh, I have to keep some financial records because I have to pay taxes. So then that tells you, okay, I need a software program to record this in, or I need to start using Excel spreadsheets at the very least. And then you might find some inefficiencies. For me, for instance, I started using Excel spreadsheets. And then there was one month when I first started out where my husband said, well, Elaine, you seem like you're working so much, but it seems like you made hardly any money this month. I said, no, no, it was the same as every month. And then six months later, I get a letter from one of my clients saying, Elaine, we sent you a $5,000 check, but you didn't cash it. Would you like us to resend it? And I realized I didn't even notice Mm -hmm. that I was missing a $5,000 check because my record keeping was so crappy. So I realized I needed to use something better than my own Excel spreadsheet. So I used FreshBooks, which is a very easy entry-level program. And every time I got an assignment, before I even started working on it, I put it in FreshBooks. 
and save it so I didn't forget to invoice for it. And then when the date came that I finished the project and it was approved by the client, I would just change the date to that date for the invoice and send it out. And then I, I didn't lose track anymore. So that was a, an example of the business teaching me mm-hmm. I needed that help. Now, as I grew my business more, my bookkeeping became more complicated and I wound up switching to QuickBooks because it had certain functions that I needed. At that point, I I learned QuickBooks to a certain extent, but I realized I just didn't have the interest in truly mastering it the way I needed to. And that was when I brought in the bookkeeper. And again, that that came from the business teaching me that I needed to because I I couldn't find certain functions. I was going on YouTube, looking for videos to explain it and wasting so much time trying to understand it Mm -hmm. that it wasn't worth it because then I wasn't writing or editing or working with clients. And that that's what the business is about. So you, you will learn just through those types of pain points, what you need to do and what kind of help you need. Or, or for instance, a client sends you a contract and you look at it and it's beyond your legal knowledge and it's important. You might realize you need a lawyer and it might be a little bit expensive to hire them, but maybe it's so important, like a book contract, for instance, it's going to affect a lot financially for you. It's worth it to get a lawyer. So you'll, you'll start to realize when you're out of your depth that you need that help, but it tends to happen gradually. Usually the first year you don't need that much outside help. Maybe you need an accountant if you're not used to small business accounting to do your taxes mm-hmm. and then you, you, you go from there. Got it. Um, are there common mistakes that you see entrepreneurs make, especially with their, let's say, first businesses? Well, one of them is maybe sticking too long with an idea that people are not buying. Sometimes it's it's good to be persistent, but mm-hmm. a business isn't really a business if it's not selling something. So there, there's a point where, yes, you have to pick up traction. But for instance, if you're going past the year, and still nobody is buying what you're selling. You may have to repackage your services. You may have to market things differently. You may have to think about whether people need or want what you're selling. But that that's a common mistake because people can pour a lot of money into an idea, but it's just, you know, it might be the timing is wrong. You might be ahead of the market and you have to wait a little bit. Um, that That's a big mistake that people make. Got it. And conversely, what are the the successful entrepreneurs, um, especially the one person businesses? What traits do they have that perhaps are similar with large scale businesses? The, the number one trait that separates them from everyone else, and that is connected to what large scale businesses do, is they execute on their plans. Mm-hmm. It's similar to writing, right? There's a lot of people who have great ideas for an article or a story but they don't sit down and write. There are a lot of entrepreneurs that are great visionaries. They have great ideas, but then days go by and they never do the work. Same with you know artists and any creative person because it takes a certain amount of emotional energy to sit down and do it. We have fears of failure, fears of what people will think. We have other demands on our time. We may have to have another job. We may have children. There's so many reasons not to do the work, but the ones that get to a million find a way to do it. It might be at 5 a.m. It might be on the weekends. It might be at, you know, at very inconvenient times, but they actually do. And when you look at bigger businesses, even though they're clunky and inefficient 
in the end, they actually get something done, right? Or they wouldn't be on NASDAQ or in the Fortune 500 if they did nothing. Mm -hmm. So actually doing something is the first step. I know that sounds obvious, but it, it doesn't seem to be obvious to everyone that actually sitting down and doing it is the most important thing. I I agree. I I couldn't say it better myself. One of the things I wanted to sort of ask you, um, and it's something that you've talked about in various forms, that I guess there, there's an uptick in these one these million dollar one person businesses. And I wanted to kind of ask you, you know, once sort of one person breaks that barrier, then all of a sudden people know it becomes possible. So I wanted to ask you, how long do you think it would will take, and what do you think it will take to get a $1 billion one-person business? Oh, that's a good question. And I, I actually think about it a lot. Well, I found one recently that it was a two-person business, but a non-employer business that were two guys who were about 22 years old selling um, a neck pillow. They were computer science students at Dartmouth, and they were at the computer a lot. And they made this prototype. They got some feedback from a local hospital and people in the Dartmouth alumni network and were very smart in building the business. And they got to 10 million in revenue, not even selling it in the U S market, which is the largest market they were selling it in Europe. So guys like that could very easily, I think get to 50 million by building a portfolio of other similar businesses without employees. Maybe the other people could be business partners, something like that. I don't think that's that far off. Mm -hmm. A billion might, I don't know, you know, don't hold me to this. I think 10 years, 10 years. All right. Well, 10, I think 10 years because that that's a different type of a company in terms of organizational structure. But I, I'm not sure. You know, there could come along a technology that makes it so much easier. I just wrote a story about someone who is acquiring million-dollar one-person businesses, uh, Richard Jalachandra. He was the former chairman of ClickBank, and he wants to acquire over 100 and make them into a giant company. Now, he knows about scale. ClickBank is a biggish company. So, so if someone like him comes along, then he could prove me – extremely wrong and maybe do it in a year or two. I, I don't know. You know, that, that's what's so interesting about this area is there's so much we don't know because people haven't done it before and technology is changing so fast. Plus the world is becoming a lot more global. So there are new markets that weren't open to people within, you know, who are based in one particular country before. So th there's so much changing that it, it, it could be sooner, but I think like a slow pace would be would be ten years, and a fast pace could be two or three if just something totally wild happens. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why I thought of it, and sort of my theory, um, I'm curious to to see if you agree with it or disagree. You, you um, in a couple of interviews, you cite that on average, if they're pulling in one million dollars a year, then their profit tends to be somewhere between two hundred and four hundred thousand dollars and from my perspective if you, if you're able to make that much money, then I don't know if there is a a bigger incentive to have to make more um you know because certainly from my perspective that's way more than comfortable in terms of what you're able to pull in a year uh Would you agree with that or or disagree that you know some some people do want want more than that well i I agree with you I think most people 
really don't want that much more than that. You know, people aspire to lifestyles of the rich and famous in theory, but I think in reality, if they have to choose between their time and making that kind of money, most people would be very happy with 200 to 400,000 in take home income. Now that might be different in some big cities. Like for instance, I lived outside of New York city, a family with 500,000 in income in New York city is not rich. I know that sounds insane if you live in a different part of the country, but it's the same in Silicon Valley. The cost of living and housing is so high that you actually need to make a ton of money just, just to be middle-class. Um, but what I would say is there are people, and this has happened with some of the people in the book, that love a challenge. Mm-hmm. And they might not even really be driven by money, but they'd like to see how far they can take their idea. So I think because of that, they're motivated to try to grow the businesses further. There there have been a few that have gotten up to, I think the biggest one is, is Brooklyn, and they're at 23 employees now. And I, I, I've met the owners. I think that they just love the challenge of growing the business. I know they are running a business and they'd like to make money, but I sense that there's just a challenge to scaling that some people like, and they like creating jobs for other people. They like the feeling of contributing to the community through a job creating company. Mm-hmm. They like the impact. Sometimes you can have more impact in a bigger company. So there's always going to be a subset of people that feel that way, but I feel like most people don't. They'd be happy with a business that's a job replacement plus, meaning they can pay for health insurance out of pocket, which is very expensive. They can pay for vacations. They mm-hmm. can pay for college for their kids or pay off student loans for themselves. They can save for retirement. Those are the types of things that are really eluding a lot of freelancers because there are just some built-in costs to being self-employed that people aren't really aware of until they are self-employed. And then they say, Oh my goodness, I have to make a lot more money than I made at my old job just to be where I was. But if you want to be a little past that, then you need to make more. And I will say, I think most people in jobs are underpaid because when you think about it, a bigger business has to think about cash flow. So they can't possibly pay people exactly what they're contributing. Mm -hmm. And they also want to make a profit, right? So, you know, the old battle between the um, person who controls the means of production and the worker, right? You know, their interests are not aligned. That's that's one thing I think is nice about the freelance businesses that have a lot of contractors because when the contractor's business grows, so does the owner's and vice versa. They're symbiotic, so there isn't as much conflict built into the relationship. And so it, it's sort of a win-win really for, for both parties if they work in good faith together. Mm-hmm. Well, I know, I know we're sort of pressed for time and I'm going to get you out of here, but um, I had two questions and maybe they can be the same answer. Um, having interviewed so many of these business owners, I imagine you've learned a lot of lessons. So I was curious to know what is a lesson or two that you've applied to your life and uh, the second one being, what single lesson or tip do you ultimately want people to take away with your writing and your work? And perhaps they are the same. Well, I think they are the same. The, the lesson is put yourself out there. It's very, very easy to wait until the perfect moment when you're the perfect person with the perfect skills and the perfect amount of money and the perfect amount of support to do something. 
and then your whole life will go by without doing it. But at a certain point, you have to just do something, put yourself out there, accept that it might not be perfect, accept in you know today's world of social media, internet trolls might jump on you and <laughs> criticize you, but they're probably sitting home in a basement somewhere just writing trash about people, right? If you actually do something, even if it fails, you're going to learn something from it. And, and even if you don't like the feedback you get, you are going to learn something from it, especially the feedback you don't want to hear. That really does make you grow. So that's been my takeaway is to try more new things. And I'm piloting some new services and products. And you realize you have one life, so you might as well try things at the very least, no one bought the product or service and you try another one. Um, but if you don't try, you're not going to get anywhere. Absolutely. I, I think that's a great takeaway. And um, if people want to stay up to date with everything that you're doing, because you are doing so much, what's, what's, the, one, what, what's the single place that you would net direct them to so that way they can keep up with all your work? It, um, probably the best place would be my website, elainepofeld.com. I won't spell it here. It's probably in the show notes. <laughs> yes, um, indeed. Or, or the million dollar one person business.com. This is the, um, the book <laughs> and um, there's a website for it. So if, if you write to me at either place, I have a contact box and I do write back to people or you, or you can reach me on LinkedIn or Twitter. They're both under my name. And I, I, I really welcome people to write to me. I love hearing from entrepreneurs. I am a journalist and I'd like to keep my stories relevant. So I want to know what's on your mind, what's frustrating you, where can I be helpful in gathering information that maybe you can't gather on your own, um, but would like to have, please, please do write to me. Sounds, sounds great. Well, thank you for your time. Um, truly, truly appreciate it. It's been a wonderful conversation and, uh, you know, when you have other exciting stuff, I'd love to do a follow up as well. I think there's definitely more ground we can explore. But for well, the that meantime, sounds awesome. I, I appreciate your you're a great host. These are very thoughtful, interesting questions. So I enjoyed the conversation too. Thank you. I appreciate that. Before you click away to another lesson from Phil, here's a few more things. For your benefit, we've added links to Elaine's book, her website, and some of her work in the show notes below. Additionally, Phil's questions are time-coded so you can revisit any of Elaine's answers quickly. There's a lot to unpack, so be sure to leave us a comment so we can read your thoughts and respond back to you with any questions you may have. Plus, Elaine said she'd love to follow up in the future, so Phil could always ask some of your questions directly to her when the time is right. If you've enjoyed this video, please be sure to hit that like button and tell your friends and family about us. Also, you can support this show on patreon.com slash if it doesn't burden you financially in any way. Every contribution is truly appreciated, and it helps defray the cost of putting this show together, which you can imagine takes a lot of effort. To be notified when future episodes release, subscribe on either Apple Podcasts or on YouTube. Plus, the show is now available on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and a host of other amazing platforms. All you have to do is click the link to the specific platform that's most convenient to you. Lastly, if you're a new host or college student seeking an internship in the LA area and would like to join AfterBuzz TV, visit AfterBuzz TV's contact page. A direct link is provided. Or, of course, you can tweet at Phil or Instagram me at PhilJoJuliet. Thank you so much for watching. I'm Joby Bear, a producer on the show, and we will see you next week with another one of Phil's life lessons. Bye.